the first half of chapter 1 is actually tapping into a sense of distress that Paul is under. Um, all this stuff is going on inside of himself. Um, you know, he speaks heaps about personal suffering in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 9 particularly, he, he wrote, he, the New, New International says, it felt like we had received the sentence of death. And that almost sounds like an external thing. And, 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 and he also says he despaired of life itself. Now, this is a guy who at that time is barely older than me. And he's already thinking, gee, if I tapped out now, would it matter? Ministry has caused despair in his life. That is full on to, to ponder. And yet I know ministers today who, are, who, who deal with that on a regular basis. They cop a hard hit and, and they despair of it. It's crazy. Paul is in a place of despair. He despaired of life itself. He felt like he'd had a sentence of death on him. He'd come to the realisation that maybe he won't be alive when Jesus comes back. Maybe someone more authoritarian than him is probably going to take his life and history tells us that it did. But that verse in the King James actually also says we have in ourselves the sentence of death. And that actually captures the spirit of that passage a lot better. That it's not just an external force, but it was Bonhoeffer who said, you know, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So this Christian discipleship journey is actually identification with a cross. It's not about your best life now. It's actually identification with death. Jesus died for us and we identify with that. None of this cheap discipleship thing. Just say a prayer and everything, all your wildest dreams come true. No. There's a bigger thing here. There's a, a, a really strong thing here. It's a really sobering picture for what Christianity looks like. Death becomes part of our spiritual DNA, this side of the realized kingdom. And yet in the middle of all that, he's coming, it's very melancholic the way he's kind of looking at all that. But then he has this great revelation of the work of God in all that too. He remembers and he's strengthened by the, the truth and the proof of the resurrection. Christ rose and so will I, so will we. There's the call to know with great certainty the God who is the compassionate Father. So even though he's despairing, he's still got his sights locked in on who God is, the Father who is rich in mercy. What a picture of God right there. And there's a revelation of the Spirit's work, the God of comfort, the Holy Spirit in my trauma, in my despair, in my trials, comes alongside and consoles me. Last week when we talked about you know, uh, Simeon wanting the consolation of Israel, the same word being used. Someone to come alongside us again and that's what the Spirit does. Then we looked at the second half of the chapter and that was about unpack, unpacking some silly things being said by the Corinthians, some in the Corinthian church, from a distance as they're oblivious to the trials that Paul is going through. It appears that there's some other people coming into town and these guys are teaching false gospels and, uh, and contradicting the things Paul taught the Corinthians and praying on a vulnerable church. The church is still only four or five years old. And they're being led astray by these false gospels coming in from outside teachers. 
And for these guys to actually be elevated, they have to demote the original messenger. So the, the motives of Paul are being brought into question and his methods of ministry and stuff like that are being brought into question as well. And yet we see, even in the face of all that, sure and bold leadership from Paul in those times. And uh, I said back in November that we would do well to remember some of the things that Paul used in his own playbook. He goes back and he casts his memory back to Jeremiah 9.24 with the idea that if anyone wants to boast, if anyone wants to think there's somebody, do it in the Lord and only that way. For we are nothing without the Lord. And he also says, examine ourselves often. He examined himself often. And we are to allow ourselves to be examined in healthy ways. That is part of our Christian journey right there. So when unhealthy and divisive scrutiny comes, you will know that you're covered. In your own conscience, you'll be able to look in the mirror, but how many know the mirror can be quite subjective at times? In my mirror, I am a rippling muscle man. (laughs) So I also have the mirror of other credible Christian witness as well, right? I have other people speaking to my life. And I have the Spirit of God and an openness to what He wants to say. If I hear nothing from Him, I should be worried. We need to be in tune with what He wants to say and be willing to act when He says something too. And since this is New Year's Eve, out of chapter 1, I've got one other little snippet to consider as well. Paul has spoken both of despair and pain as well as continued resolve in his theology, in his own salvation, in his calling and his ministry. Resolve won out when pain made its presence felt. Resolve won out when pain made its presence felt. And I get the sense some of us need to hear that as we come to an end of year. There may have been pain and despair and and grief and sorrow and and chapter 2 will begin to address that a little bit. But we need to allow that godly resolve to win. That I know who I am because of the truth I have in the gospel. I know what I'm called to be and do. Let godly resolve win. And don't let pain and despair overtake us. Alright, now let's get chapter 2 done. If you've got your Bibles, just going to look at the first half of chapter 2 today. And it's not going to be a long one today. So uh, let's uh, just have a look at these few few verses. So let's start at verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. All right, let's keep your thumb in there if you've got your Bibles open. And I'll come back to that in a moment. 
As we know already, the church in Corinth is a bit of a haven for some with petty accusations about the leadership of Paul. And it's kind of getting to the point that no matter what step he took next, he kind of gets scrutiny from somebody. He'd get criticism from somebody, no matter what he did. No matter what action he took next, he'd still be seen to be a fickle control freak in the eyes of some there. Some in that congregation are still oblivious to the heart behind his ministry. In chapter 1, he said, most of you understand in part. But there's a case of not all. There's a, a minority group in that church that really has a problem with him and are making these silly claims. And this part of the letter is showing a little bit more of a glimpse into where Paul is at with all this. We know that recent ministry to Corinth has been painful and sorrowful. His most recent visit was painful, which is why he says another painful visit is off the cards. I want to save you that. Why? Because he realised the last time he was there, there was grief in, in the wake of that. There was, there was some, some, some pretty full-on stuff going on there. He no doubt would have been hammered while he was there. Church members saying silly things about him. New teachers telling him he had it wrong. Correction being met with hostility. And if these things got to any sort of public meeting or if these things got into like group pack mentalities, the toll it would have taken on Paul here would have been really full on. If I can be real with you for a moment, I've seen these things take place in person in modern church. In some of the little things I've had to handle over the years, I've had weeks of self-doubt over little things. Paul has had longer time, much longer to deal with that. I mean, he's, he's had to deal with what he's found in Corinth. And then get on a boat... Sail across, get back to Ephesus where there's still trouble and strife and he's still hiding for his life there and still trying to process all these different things that he's just seen in Corinth. And he's gotten back, he's fell in a heap and he's probably in his lodging, he's cried his eyes out and through those tears he's written an impassioned plea for that congregation to get things right and he's done one last effort, sent it with Titus and goes, send this to him, please tell him to deal with this. That's a document we've never recovered but it's called the Sorrowful Letter and it's being referred to in this passage now. That letter I wrote, you guys. He wrote it through tears with a heart of love for the church, seeking to come to a point where joy be restored again that's the aim of what he wrote here my love for you wants to see joy restored again joy is something that the church is called to pursue it's a fruit of the spirit and it comes when things are properly reconciled within ourselves the biblical idea of joy is actually to be balanced and calm, gracious and happy in that things are simply in the right place. In this passage, it is described as an opposite of sorrow and grief and conflict. And it's something that can be found 
supernaturally in the midst of tough times. Joy is not an over-the-top party. The artificial means are, but the real stuff isn't. But instead, it is described in Scripture as a sustaining gladness that goes on no matter what you're facing. There are people in this congregation who tell me that even in the midst of tough circumstances, I'm still rejoicing. And you can tell it's coming from the depth of their character as they're speaking that out. That is the joy that the Scriptures talk about here. That's the joy that Paul wants to have restored in this congregation in Corinth. Paul himself wanted to experience that joy himself. Wanted to know, I want to be in that position of joy. I want to be in a place where grief, sorrow, conflict is resolved. But it appears for him that joy is a community expression and experience. And he's calling Corinth to come to that place so that he can be in that place too. The severe letter that he refers to here was sown in tears, calling for things to be reconciled so that joy could be reaped. The big thought out of this is this, the, the, the church, when the church is reconciled, when conflict is dealt with, when sorrow and grief is addressed and the Spirit does His work in the midst of all that, when restoration occurs in the midst of those things and the Spirit is clearly working, the end result, the fruit of that work is joy. As we get into this last part I'm going to look at today, verse 5 to 11, Paul actually puts some practical legs on how to actually see joy restored. And this is one of the personal sticking points he has in order to see joy resolved. So let's look at verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you will stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. The context of this, there has been an act of discipline take place in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes about a guy in the church who was living with his stepmom. The church was taking pride in their tolerance and Paul is screaming out on paper to take the opposite approach. He calls instead for mourning and sorrow at such a thing going on in their midst. 
He calls for a church meeting to take place where they actually remove that guy from fellowship. It appears in that passage that he has a personal interest in the issue, stating that he's already passed judgment on the situation and will be there in spirit when they have a meeting and they do the same thing. As we read 2 Corinthians, we know that that issue had taken place 18 months ago. With the speed of mail back then, with the immaturity of the Corinthian church, with the apparent unwillingness to take action by some, there may be scope to believe that this is the same issue being spoken of here. And that it's gotten to a point of grief because Paul may well have had to go there himself and part of the painful visit was to take that matter into his own hands. For me, the time and the context and the state of the church, for me to a degree does fit. Particularly if the the offender was a patron and as a result people were reluctant to initiate action on the issue. Sometimes discipline issues do take a long time in church. There are, however, scholars who think the instance in this passage is not the same one. And although they can't describe any other type, they surmise that it is something that clearly has gotten on the wrong side of Paul in this and it's big enough for him to have been personally involved in it. Either way, that painful visit would have involved him taking that matter into his own hands. And we see from this passage that the majority of the congregation has backed Paul's decision. And that is a good thing because unity in tough situations like that is always a healthy thing. It's a sign of health when you value what you have and you won't let other people come and break the group deal. Equally good is the bit where Paul says that the whole congregation has felt the pain of this. If fellowship is sacred, and scriptures tell us it is, then cutting someone from that sacred position should be felt by others. I read recently again about um, Rick Allen. He was a a rock drummer from the 80s and 90s. Had a car accident, lost an arm. Got out of bed, fell all over the hospital room because he couldn't actually understand the weight distribution and had to learn to walk again. Had to make massive adjustments. Actually asking someone not to fellowship with us should actually feel like a body part being removed and having to adjust to its absence. But even gooder, if there's such a word, (laughs) is the process of restoration and reconciliation if it can be achieved. There is call here for forgiveness towards the repentant individual and I surmise that it is a repentant individual here, not just a free-for-all, let's forgive everyone, let's just, you know, yeah, we kick them out but we'll have them back next week, everything's fine, just make them think about it, sit in the corner. There's actually repentance going on here because the idea of excessive sorrow indicates that the person is making steps of putting significant things right 
There is a sense that the cutting from fellowship has created a sense of grief in them and they are doing all they can to make that right so they can get back to that place of fellowship again. They're doing their part of the relationship restoration part. If it's the sexual sin of 1 Corinthians, then steps have been taken to seize that behaviour and a journey of accountability has begun again. If it's, as some scholars suggest, divisive talk that is leading people to false gospels and cults of personalities, then those positions appear to have changed. If it's one of the unfounded attacks on Paul, then the offender has recanted and repented of such actions. And Paul writes here that such a person needs to be shown the opposite of what he encountered in discipline. Instead of cutting them off, he says, comfort them. The same God of comfort, the same word being used, becomes our ministry. What we have received of the Spirit becomes our ministry. And we come alongside them again. Where there is offence, make it clear that they are forgiven. Demonstrate your love for each other afresh. Where there is grief, allow the spirit to restore joy to the situation and let fellowship continue again. I particularly love Paul's approach to this. I love his wording. If there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. If there's anything to forgive, he knew full well what had to be forgiven. But there's an element of forgive and forget in his wording here. If there's anything to forgive. Yeah, I know there was hurt there. I don't remember what it is. But I forgive. In doing so, Paul writes, we give Satan no further space to work. You know what? When we have to, even in the midst of discipline, even though it is the righteous thing to do, Satan still has a bit of a field day with that. Even for a bit he can fracture a body and he's kind of happy with that. But reconciliation shows again what the kingdom of God is all about. It's a value of the kingdom. And anything we can do to demonstrate that value now brings glory to him and it brings joy to us. Those are some musings on this one part of the chapter and I just want to prayerfully ask a couple of questions and then I'll invite the worship team up again. As we come into New Year's Eve, as we come into a new beginning Remembering how we finish one chapter determines the way we'd start the next. If we finish in grief, you're going to start in grief. But if we finish in restoration, if we finish in peace, how much better will our year be? I want 2018 to start with joy. Is joyful a word you would use to describe yourself right now. If not, what needs to be reconciled in your life at this time? 
Is it something in your own being? Is it something not reconciled within yourself? Is there a habit gotten out of control? Is there something not right in your life that you just know that you need to deal with? Is it a human relationship? Is there a journey towards reconciliation that needs to occur in some of those things? Is there someone in our lives that needs to be forgiven, loved and comforted? Have we had to cut someone off? And is there a journey back with that person? Sometimes those things need to ferment a bit longer until the other person is willing to meet you there. And that's fine. But what about the ones where the Lord has given you clearance to go, you know what, go and rekindle that friendship. Get that relationship up and running again. Are there issues of unforgiveness unnecessarily held on to here? Are there people that we need to be getting alongside again? What will be your expression of that? How will you go about deliberately doing this? What steps of reconciliation can you take, even today, so you can get into a new year with a clean slate? And finally, that bit at the start I said, will you let resolve win when pain and despair come calling? Life's painful, we know that. There is sorrow, there is grief, there is different things that that will affect us at times. But our joy will come when we allow the Spirit to show himself strong in those things that we can live reconciled and joyful lives. There's an invitation to a great life there. Will you pursue it? Let's close in prayer and we'll worship the Lord.